Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. And today we resume where we left off last week. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18, focusing particularly on 12 through 15. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you have with you today. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Several decades ago, Peter J. Lawrence wrote a book entitled The Peter Principle. The basic idea being that in any organization, people rise to their level of incompetence. Now that's a nice thing to say about us, isn't it? Today we're gonna to look at what I'm describing as the Peter principles. There are three principles that we're gonna look at that come from this passage of scripture as it relates to our living the life that God has called us to and has had in mind for us since before the beginning of time. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible uses the command, remember? I was thinking about that in preparation for the message today and did a little bit of research, and I discovered that the word remember in the New American Standard translation, at least, occurs 168 times. It's a command that's given over and over and over again. I wonder why. One of the things that is true of us is that we have a tendency to forget easily. That's something that we all have to deal with, isn't it? We forget people. When we lay people to rest whom we have loved, some closer than others, but people who we care about, we talk together about the parting of this person from our lives, and we say we will never forget him nor will we ever forget her. Now I must admit, in my own life, as I thought about this in preparation for this message, I thought about three men with whom I was very close growing up. One named Jimmy Rogers. 
Jimmy was two years older than I. When he was 20 years of age, he drowned in Sardis Lake, northern Mississippi. I rarely ever think about Jimmy anymore. Actually, this is probably the first day I've thought about him in years. So I would have told you that day, I will never forget Jimmy. But as the old saying goes, life moves on and we are part of the flow of that movement of life. The other person is Woody Gregory. Woody and I had been friends since high school. And actually of the two men that I'm mentioning to begin with, who were not related to me by blood, they were my blood brothers in Christ. Woody was at one time a man whom I would have called my best friend. We both married. He stayed in Memphis. And I moved to Fort Worth, Texas to go to seminary. And when I was probably about 24 years old, I received word that he had been killed in an automobile accident. I was asked to serve as a pallbearer in his funeral as I had been in Jimmy Rogers' funeral. And I mourned his loss. But you know, I don't think about him very much anymore. I didn't even think about him until I was considering what I'm sharing with you today. It's been months probably since I've thought of him. My dearest friend I've ever had on earth, Dee Baker, passed away a year ago in late October. And I do think of him still. I wonder, given the passage of time, would I continue to remember him? And then my cousin that I was closest to, David Wade, had chronic nephritis, nephritis rather, and he died as a relatively young man. I think of David quite a bit, but not as much as I thought I might have. We used to saying, time heals all things, which may be a cover-up for the fact that we tend to forget even the people that are closest to us and the events that have occurred in our personal lives or our national lives or international lives. It is true. The thing that we do share, all of us, we share many things, but this one thing we probably all share, that there is a tendency and a strong likelihood that we'd have a tendency to forget. Have any of you forgotten anything since this time last week? If I were to ask you to give something you learned from last week's message, it would be very humiliating to me because you probably wouldn't remember a whole lot about it. And to be honest with you, I don't remember as much as I ought to. You'd think I would remember more about it. Conversely, we tend to find impossible to forget things we would like to forget. I was talking with a couple of brothers separately, I might add, this week, and we were talking, reminiscing about our lives, and I said to both of them in a little different way, I said, in answer to a question that was raised to me, or what was raised in the conversation at least, uh, do you have any regrets? And I said, you know, one of the things I struggle with as I grow older is wishing that I had made different decisions earlier in my life dating back all the way to my preteen life. I remember a decision I delayed and delayed and delayed in making. If I had not delayed, my life probably would have turned out differently and my life could have had an impact on people that I interacted with between the age of about 11 or 12 until 
the age of about 22. There's a big void in terms of having an impact because I was one who forgot what I should have remembered. But then in addition to that, I tended to do things that were not pleasing to the Lord. And I'm reminded of that a lot. Now, I don't think God is the one who necessarily reminds me of these kinds of things. However, I do know that the Holy Spirit of God, among other things, is given the responsibility within the Godhead to bring to my remembrance the Word of God as it relates to behaviors in my life that are inconsistent with one who is dwell, indwelled by God himself, by the Spirit of God. But then there are other times when Satan comes against me. Let's remember something about the devil. I don't like to think a lot about him, but we need to know about his schemes. They're clearly described in the scriptures. We won't look at them in detail. I'm only going to mention one. It's found in the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter, where the Bible says that Satan accuses those of us who are children of God all the time. So if the devil fails in getting me to disobey God, this is what I know that he does. If I do disobey God and I ask God's forgiveness, what I discover is that the devil, after I've asked forgiveness and been sincere at it, the devil just hammers me with it. Anybody like that? Hammers and hammers. And remember what the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. And also in the book of Hebrews, quoting from the Old Testament prophet, the writer of Hebrews speaks for God, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Blessed words those are, aren't they? If we are sincere in confessing and repenting, then we can talk back to the devil, as A.W. Tozer said in one of his books, and tell him, I'm putting you on notice, Satan. I don't have to listen to that because I believe what God says about confess and repented of sin more than your garbage you're throwing my way. So we need to be people who acknowledge that we forget and then also understand that we can't let go of some things and it either has to do with a failure of our repenting of that sin, including confessing it, and or recognizing that once having confessed and repented of a sin, God doesn't even bring it up anymore. That's very encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you, both of those insights. Having given that as introduction now, let us go and look at three Peter principles that are in this passage of Scripture. The first is, we need to make a distinction between being aware of a truth and living by it. Too many of us are filled with a lot of head knowledge about Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, about what the Bible teaches. But it's quite another thing to live it out, isn't it? David understood this. He understood that all the differentiation between knowing what's good and doing it is necessary. We need to make that distinction and do away with a reluctance to obey the Lord 
In his prayer in Psalm 143, verse 10, this is what he says to the Father. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me to do your will, O Lord. David evidently didn't have a lack of understanding of the will of God, and that could be said about most of us in this room today. We know a lot about the will of God, but do we really do it? Do we apply it? There's where the disconnect comes. While you're in the vicinity, just turn back to your left. A couple of books to the book of James chapter 4. And read silently as I read the last verse of James chapter 4. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So sin can be passive in nature. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. The doing is the hard part, isn't it? If we know Christ, He reveals the truth to us. The Spirit of God teaches us the Word. If we open the book and read the Bible, we know what His will is. And then it's another step to be diligent, to apply it. If I am not diligent to differentiate between the awareness an actual practice of truth, I am one who is of no value to God. Because as long as I'm not applying what he's doing, it's just so much exercise in intellectual pursuit of God and not relational pursuit of God. Peter emphasizes in this principle the importance of keeping Verses 1 through 11 in mind. Look at verse 12, the way he begins the section, therefore, and you know the old adage, when you come to the word therefore in the Bible, you want to look and see what it's there for. It's referring to what has preceded. And actually, it's talking about the introduction to this book. Please remember, Peter had written another epistle, 1 Peter. And the emphasis of that epistle was to encourage and prepare those who received it to deal with what he describes in that first letter as fiery trials. And how this life, if one follows Christ, is going to be a life that has problems. Peter was not the only writer in Scripture who mentioned this. He was not the only apostle who brought it to the attention of those who were under his leadership. And whoever wrote about it learned it from the master himself. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, made mention in the 16th chapter of the gospel of John, he said, understand this, in this world you will have tribulation. Trouble comes because you're associated with me. But don't get too disturbed because I'm going through tribulations and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to help you to navigate the treacherous water of difficulty that is inevitable to come when you follow me in this life. On May the 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of Great Britain. When he met with his cabinet, on the 13th, before going from that cabinet meeting 
to speak to the parliament. He gave him a simple statement. I offer you blood, toil, tears, and sweat. That's all. He was very candid in his speech to parliament. That's exactly what the leaders of Great Britain needed to hear. And it was also equally, if not more important, for the citizenry to hear because that is exactly what was going to have to happen before they could win a victory over the Axis powers. And the Lord knows in our lives we're going to have difficulty. He says it in so many ways. And we need to understand that the people to whom this second letter was written probably had already begun to undergo such trouble in their lives. And so he's writing what he's written in the first 11 verses. I'll let you go back and read that again. And in so writing, he reminds us today even by the Spirit of God that God has equipped us. He's given us, according to verse 3 of this chapter, everything pertaining, get this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you and I need is already ours. It's the divine power that is made available to us because we are partakers of the divine nature. God has come to indwell us and in indwelling us, God shares His power because He shares His person with us. Imagine that, that the God of the universe would want to live in you or live in me. But it's true, isn't it? This is the testimony of all the apostles about their own lives and by association, us in relationship to the Lord. Why do you think Paul emphasized the importance of making a distinction between simply being aware of a truth and living by that truth? Because he knew that he had the same problem. Didn't he? What do we know most about him? The thing that pops to my mind, first of all, maybe to yours too, is his being told by Jesus the night before Jesus died, he, right before he's rested, he told Peter and the other apostles, but Peter is the one he singled out. He was the recognized leader in the apostolic band. They looked to him, and to a degree, Jesus did too. Gave him a high responsibility. But he said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And what did he say? Not me, Lord. These other guys might, but I will not. I'll be with you tooth and nail. I will be with you to the bitter end. Within hours, this man had done a 180. I think he was sincere when he said it. Do you? I don't think there was any lack of sincerity. He was committing himself to do it. But when the time came, he was unable to differentiate between a truth that Christ gave him and living it out. And this is true of all of us to a degree. I understand that, and you do too. 
But we don't have to live that kind of life. In fact, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the Lord would not give us that assignment without first giving us the equipment to fulfill whatever he has given us to do. That's Peter's principle number one. We need to be people who can make a distinction before being, between being aware of a truth and living it out. Here's the second principle. We need to stir up our memories of these truths. Look again at our passage of Scripture. Verse 12, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. They knew them and have been established in the truth. The word established has the idea of something is imparted to them, and the impartation of that something is the person of the Lord, but also this truth. Now, there may be a double meaning here, because we know that Jesus describes himself as the truth. He says, I am the resurrection and the truth. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth, but Jesus also says in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's the word of God that is truth. At least Peter is talking about the word of God here, but likely he's speaking of Jesus as well, who is the personification of that truth. He goes on to say, and I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He talks of his life, this earthly dwelling. He's not talking about a house. He's talking about his body. And the word dwelling is the same word that's used by John the Apostle when he's talking about Jesus in John 1, 14 regarding the incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled, tented, pitched his tent, tabernacled among us so that we may behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. So here he's talking about as long as I'm living, I'm going to do my dead level best to keep on stirring you up by way of reminder. Do you know we need to stir ourselves up, our memories of the truths of God? I thought of three verses. They came to my mind quickly today when I was thinking about this command to remember. One's in Deuteronomy 4.9. It says, keep your soul diligently and remember the things your eyes have seen. He's talking to Israel right before they're going to go into the promised land. So he says, don't forget, remember the things your eyes have seen so that they may not depart from your mouth, but teach them to your sons and your grandsons. Remember, this is a good one for me as a father and a grandfather. We have fathers and grandfathers in this room. You have a responsibility to remind your children and your grandchildren of the things your eyes have seen that God has done, things that could not be explained otherwise. And I'm not talking about something that would be considered a wowing kind of event. 
But when you knew God was working in your life and you obeyed God and he responded according to his promise in your obedience to him. I thought of Ecclesiastes 5, uh, excuse me, 12.1, which says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Well, it's too late for me now, but I'm still trying to remember the, the, my creator. We need to do that all the time, don't we, men and ladies? And then also in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus receives this admonition from Jesus. And Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen. You have left your first love. How about you, man, woman here today? Have you fallen to a level lower than you were at the height of your relationship to the Lord? Well, remember it. And by implication, what Jesus is saying, return to your first love. Listen to the one who indwells you and obey him. Make a distinction between just knowing about him and really knowing of him. There's a huge gap between those two. And we are called to know of him and consequently to see his power generated in our hearts to be obedient to him and bring honor to him. As long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, I must not let a day pass without stirring up my memory of the Lord and the things he's taught me. We don't have to wait for a Sunday to do that, do we? We don't have to wait until Christmas to celebrate the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, do we? We can do it all the time, every day. This shows the importance of reading the Bible and doing more than that, letting it become part of who we are. Jeremiah says, your word did I find and I ate it and it became my joy and the delight of my heart. Can you make a statement about God's word like that today? Well, please understand that is the will of God for you. And you're selling yourself short, not to mention God, if you are not interacting with him in this way. In Joshua 1.8, God speaks to the leader of Israel who had an ominous task facing him, crossing over the Jordan River, seeing that fortress of Jericho, wondering how his men, who had really not been trained for war, they had some weapons, but they had not done much battle. How were they going to do it? This is what God said. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You want to be successful? I'm not talking about in the world's eyes, although you may get some notoriety if you live this kind of life. But this is talking about in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kingdom, isn't it? And the Lord wants us to understand that. I think about some verses. One came to my mind immediately that once applied to my life, it really covers the others. It doesn't mean I don't need to keep reading and 
applying other things, but it's a simple command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What it really means in its detail would be keep on being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let me do it another way that would even give broader understanding of it. Y'all keep on being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And it goes on to say, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That would be Jesus. And giving thanks to the Lord. Always giving thanks to the Lord in everything. Paul didn't leave any stone unturned grammatically when he's explaining that. And then here's a tough one. The last one, submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ. Do you know these are the tests to apply to my life? I have to go through these regularly because I get off the rails so subtly and so quickly while I'm doing the Lord's work, of course. And what we need to understand is we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that some kind of wild-eyed, kind of crazy kind of life? Well, it can result in things that will open the eyes of the one in whom he dwells and who does yield herself or himself. And it may make some impression on other people, but it will be a life that matters and counts for the glory of God. In that same passage, we simply go over that command, but you know what follows in Ephesians 5? Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Wow. And then later it says, wives, respect your husbands. That's an unconditional command. It's not submit or respect if they're godly. It says respect and submit. End of discussion. And then we know the one I think is the harder because I'm a man, of course. But the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for the church. Wow. These are huge commands, aren't they? In fact, they're impossible were it not for the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us if we know God. And he is the one who gives us the power to live in this kind of of relationship with others. And there's so many other things. Look, we need to jog our memories and there's no better way than opening the Word of God and coming with expectation and say to Him, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. These are just some of the things that come through my mind when I come before the Lord. And sometimes I just kind of roll right through them. I can quote them in my sleep. I've quoted it so much. And there's a danger in settling into some kind of routine. There's nothing routine about coming into the presence of God. In Ecclesiastes 5, the Bible says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God is in heaven and you are on earth. 
so let your words be few. We're not going for a conflab with God when we come to meet Him. Our primary role is to listen, to come, to hear. What a privilege we have. Unbelievable to have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Principle one of Peter's, we need to make a distinction between simply being aware of a truth or truths and living by that truth or those truths. Secondly, we need to stir up our memories of these truths. We have that capacity. and We need to do it for others, to share it with others, just like Peter was doing. Now here's the final principle of Peter. It's not the churches nor the pastor's business to present new, creative, interesting ideas when they teach the Bible. Rather, it is to teach the gospel to people, to teach the whole counsel of God to people. And we who have the responsibility of teaching certainly need to understand that no one should aspire to be a teacher because teachers are subject to a higher accountability. But when we do teach, we need to be sure we're not just teaching our own newfangled ideas and trying to get a new twist on something that seems to be old and worn out in Scripture, but we try to teach the Scripture. We are committed to teaching the apostles' teaching as it is described. I remember often what these two unnamed disciples of Christ whom Christ met rather unexpectedly, I might add, for them on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Day. And they were very sad as they walked the several miles from Jerusalem having gone there for the Passover. And they were going back to their village in Emmaus. And they were very downcast because Jesus had died a couple of days before on the cross. And then his tomb was empty. They wondered what had happened to him. And then Jesus talked to them and interacted with them. At first, they didn't recognize him. But then when he came to their dwelling place and sat down with them and began to break bread, they saw undoubtedly the marks in his hands from the crucifixion, and it dawned on them who it was who had been speaking to them. And the scripture says there in the book of Luke chapter 24 that he began with Moses, that would be what is known as the Torah, the first five passages or books in the Bible attributed to Moses. He began there and went through all the prophets and talked about the Christ, namely himself, showed how the Old Testament speaks of the Christ. And then he disappeared. And when these two looked at each other and they interacted, do you remember what they said? Yeah, did not our hearts burn within us when we heard him teach about himself in the word of God? Do you know the topic of scripture is Jesus Christ? And 
whether you're reading what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, or the New Testament, the Greek Scriptures, Jesus is the focal point, and we can have fellowship with Him. Nothing is more relevant and important than the gospel in any era. Every era has similarities. This era has similarities to previous ages because it's inhabited by human beings who are sinners. That's why. And it's amazing, isn't it, how people want to know about all kinds of things, political, social, financial, and we live in a real world that has these elements. And it's not as if we should be disinterested. But when those things are elevated to a level above the thing that should be our obsession, quite frankly. Because remember what Jesus says when he's calling people to be disciples. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, and we're not talking about the apostle, we're talking about just being a follower of Christ. That's what a disciple is, an apprentice of Jesus Christ, having Jesus as his or her teacher. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels shall save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He goes on to talk about, if you're ashamed of me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come at the end of the age. And if you study that passage carefully, I love that passage of Scripture in terms of the challenge it gives to me. I need to go there frequently too, just like I need to go to Ephesians chapter 5, 18. But what occurred to me after years of teaching from that passage of Scripture was Jesus is the central figure. It's me, me, my, I. And so Jesus is to be our magnificent obsession if we know him. And we have the privilege of just that. People are more apt to forget the gospel than anything else. Would you agree with that? I'm, not, I'm talking about people in the world. In this passage, let's go to verse 16 and look at this. We read from the book of Luke. Matthew and Mark also give their own renditions of the Mount of Transfiguration. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, and that's what the apostles were being accused of. Eventually, we'll get to that in the book of 2 Peter. The false teachers were saying, you're just making up these things. And the word tales really is the word muthos, from which our English word myth comes or myths come. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is echoed by John in 1 John. He says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, we are bearing witness to him, the word of life, namely Jesus. And the reason for that is we want more joy in our hearts because if you come to know this Jesus we can have fellowship with you. You can have fellowship with us and we all can have fellowship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. So here he is talking about 
what we read about in verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. It's a way of speaking of God. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Jesus revealed a part of him that they had yet seen when his garments shone brightly. And why was that? Because the radiance of his inner person, his deity came shining through. The Christmas season is obviously about the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for coming to be one of us, to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from our own selfishness. Life itself is something that was originally designed to be lived, to be enjoyed by us. And hold on, if you want to take exception to that. We think about our origin. The world today holds a biological views or views that are not complimentary about us. I was looking at some of you on your phones, when you turn your phone on, they have these kind of different things that whoever Google is thinks you'd be interested in. And one I read just this past week was seven archaeological discoveries that rewrote history in 2020. And I was not at all interested in reading them. And my anticipated disappointment was confirmed when I finally said, well, I am going to read them. And one of the seven discoveries was somewhere in Europe and a tooth that was 800,000 years old, supposedly, of a being that was once thought to be one of our ancestors, it was declared that being was not a human being. I said, well, thank you very much. I knew that a long time ago. Before I ever heard the word evolution, right? And what Science would like to tell us that there was no intelligent designer. That is one of the hardest things. I cannot believe how much faith it takes to believe in all this just happening. The intricacy of you in your physical being or any organism in its being is just phenomenal. Not to mention the way the universe is organized and where the earth is situated among all the planets and all the galaxies, all, the con all, all of this stuff. Unbelievable, isn't it? Well, the Bible talks about our origin and it says that our lives were intended to be grand things. Man's not merely a thinking animal that has evolved from lower animal forms. Think about what God said about man. Let us make man in our image. We are special creations as human beings. And then in Psalm 8, that beautiful, beautiful psalm, which begins, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It begins and ends with that same paean of praise to God. But then in it, it says, God made 
us a little lower than the angels. That is not the right translation, my friend. The word translated angels is Elohim. To whom does that refer? A little lower than God. That's who you are. You're not God, but you were created in his image. If that doesn't dignify you, nothing ever will. And it it is a picture of how God wants us as part of his special creation to become more and more like him. And this is the gospel, the nature of life. There's a destination for us. In verse 14, look at what Peter writes, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. He knew he was coming to an end of his life. We don't know exactly why. We know that Jesus had told him what kind of death he would die when he met him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's recorded in the 21st chapter of John. Read it at your leisure. But here, this word departure, is actually, actually it's the word exodus in Greek. It's a word exodus. If you sound it out, Greek letter, and sound it out, it's exodus. Just as surely as God delivered the children of Israel from bondage into freedom, through Moses. So Jesus Christ has done that for us. He has set us free from death, spiritually speaking. He has given his life to us. We have the capacity for meaning in our lives that we did not have before receiving Christ. There's purpose in this life. We must differentiate before, between rather, our Bodies which house our personality and the personality itself. The most important part of you is not your physical body. We have to have a physical body to get around in this world, to represent the Lord well in this world. But the body is not a place of permanence. The choice of calling it a tent is no accident on Peter's part. People without God treat their bodies so carefully, and I'm all for that. Eat right, rest right, exercise, all those things. But spend at least an equal amount of time alone with God. Because one day in His courts better than a thousand elsewhere in Planet Fitness or other places like that. For people that don't know the Lord because they, they don't like the gospel. They hate it. People who don't know Christ hate to hear somebody like me talk about sin. But this is in the gospel. Christ died according to Scripture for what purpose? He became sin on my behalf. He took the punishment for my sin on the cross so that I could begin migration back, as it were. And I'm not talking about transmigration of the soul. I'm just talking about getting in a place where I can become like Christ. I could never do that on my own. I would have no real interest in it. And I would fail if I did. 
because I don't have the capacity, but Christ in me gives me the capacity to know and to follow him. Peter saw himself as a sojourner in this world. Life is a journey, isn't it? We're just passing through if we know Jesus. And this world is like a temporary dwelling place for us. The nature of life, destination. And isn't it true that big questions which are asked, where did I come from? That's a question every thinking person wants to know. Where did I come from? Also, where am I going when this is over? And then, why am I here? That's a biggie. Probably the most prominent of the three. The purpose for me and you is to have this view of life in the world, that being that I would fulfill God's purpose for me, which was designed to bring honor to Him, glory to Him, not to myself. Why have we been placed here, we ask? Am I here by chance? Am I just a part of the biological processes of reproduction? I met with a young man this past week. He's one of the, the most outstanding young men I've met in some time. He's in his early 20s. He's a very appealing person in the way he takes care of himself on the outside, but he has a heart for the Lord. And as he opened up to me, he talked about how he was the product of a, an illegitimate relationship. And I could tell that really bothered him. I said, look, brother, there are no accidental births. None. I don't care how or what the circumstances of conception were. If you were conceived and you're here and you were both, then God permitted it. And he wants to use you. And you are valuable to the Lord because you're made in his image. And in his case, he's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are headed to a greater destination, aren't we? A greater destiny. Paul talks about himself in 2 Timothy 2. He said, the time of my departure has come. I'm going real soon to the place of where the Lord is, and He is my righteous judge, and He's going to give me a crown of righteousness. We glorify God. We do what He created us to do. That's to honor Him as we depend upon Him for everything. Every action and encounter in my life counts. Not because I'm a pastor or I'm Mike Woods. It counts because I'm a child of God. And we have that great opportunity and responsibility to recognize that there are no chance encounters in our lives. And you are his child and he wants to use you and he wants to use me. And how does that happen? When I make a distinction between a truth or his truths and not living them out. I need to live them out, and you do too, if you know the Lord. You don't have the capacity to do it if you don't know Christ, but if you have Christ in your life, you do. And then you might ask, then why is the world as it is if life is so great? Well, if God's the author of life, 
and man is his unique creation, how does one explain the world as it is? The world hates sin. It's, it's amazing me, to me the, the links to which people who don't know Christ go to find answers. And it's all over the place in the media, isn't it? All these advertisements of how to improve yourself physically and emotionally and relationally. And I hope you understand I believe in all that, but I believe in a different way to do it because I believe in what the Word of God has to say about it. God has a plan for us. Look at verse 15 of our passage. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my exodus, you may be able to call these things to mind. This was Peter's heart. And this would be the heart of all of us and anybody in a position of teaching the Bible for sure that you want to teach the whole counsel of God and encourage people to embrace the Word of God and not just to embrace it intellectually, but embrace it in practicality in that life. Death is a passing spiritual from this world to a better world, but we have to die to ourselves and we're set free. What sets us free, by the way? The truth, doesn't it? Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You need help? Go to the Lord. Look at what he says. Apply what he says. Therein lies the secret to you or, my, or me being set free. During this time, I was just curious about the suicide rate during COVID-19 era and the use of alcohol in the first month, I was amazed to discover that the consumption of alcohol went up 262% over 2019 in the first month of COVID-19. That's telling, isn't it? What people resort to, to get relief when we have, we who know Christ, we know the Lord. We don't have to do that. We just trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge Him and He will make our paths straight. This is a great life God's given us if we're in Christ. And it boils down to knowing Jesus, doesn't it? Those who survived the Holocaust in Europe in the 1930s and 40s and those who were related to those who did survive their mantra is never forget. And it's a good one, isn't it? But we need never to, that should be our heart. Never forget what God has done for us and share it with other people. Let's go back as we finish to look what Peter wrote in verse 11. It's not part of today's text, but it was last week's. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And that is based upon verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his, that would be God's, purifying of us from our former sins. What a great God we have and what a great gospel he has given us. Lord, we thank you for becoming one of us. And we thank you for your spirit giving us the word of God and teaching us we pray that this Christmas would be extraordinary for us. 
as we reflect on who you are and who we are as a result of your choosing us to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Be sure to turn your ballots in as you leave to one of the...